This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members, produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and policy insider Chris Condolucci. Hello. Welcome to the Health Plan Alliance's Policy Unpacked podcast. As always, I'm Dennis Bolin. I work for you at the Health Plan Alliance. And with us today is Chris Condolucci. Hi, Chris. It's July in Washington, D.C. Is it hot and steamy there yet? Yes, it's gotten hot and steamy. It's been up and down like you know most parts of the country, but um, it's definitely hot and steamy today, although we had a, a nice weekend over the July 4th holiday, of which I hope everybody who's listening in today had a great July 4th holiday. And we look forward to talking to you about some important rules that came out literally two days before the July 4th holiday weekend. So giddy up. All right. That's great, Chris. So, uh, yeah, did you have to spend the holiday weekend taking a look at the regulations that came out on July the 1st? I have to admit, I was surprised that they actually met their deadline for issuing the first set of regulations that uh, relates to the interim final rule. Or, again, this being Washington, it's got to have an acronym, the IFR. I think the report was titled, if I saw it right, Requirements Relating to the Surprise Billing. Part one. Uh, So that part one is interesting, and we'll dive into what that means in just a little bit. But consistent, you know, with what we've been saying in our previous conversations, this IFR, if I understand correctly, it does go further in defining certain statutory terms that had been left undefined, like emergency and ancillary, and then one of my favorites, post-stabilization services. And also, very importantly, the IFR explains, if I have it right, how the surprise billing payment process will work, which has been kind of an unknown for us. But, you know, not everything I think was covered in this IFR. And they even included a statement that the departments will address through regulation or guidance later this year and maybe even after, if I have this right. January the 1st of 2022, some additional requirements under uh, the No Surprises Act, which is going to be interesting since everything is supposed to be effective January the 1st of 2022. So, Chris, maybe that's the place for us to start. What's not in the IFR? And what should we be having our eyes on leading into 2022 And then after uh, we're done with that, then we'll dive into what's actually in the regulation. So starting there, what's not in the regulation? Yeah, and I think that's the the right place to start, because to your point, when you articulated the title, Requirements Related to Surprise Billing Part 1, it's Part 1 because there are multiple phases, multiple parts of regulations and guidance that we are going to see over the remainder of 2021 and spilling all the way into 2022. And this first, this July 1st IFR, uh, July 1st set of regulations, this part one set of regulations is just that. It's kicking off these various phases that are going to be rolling. And to your point, Dennis, the um, surprise billing requirements and other requirements that were provisions that were enacted through the No Surprises Act generally have a January 1, 2022 effective date, yet 
the departments have just gotten out this part one six months before the effective date of January 1, 2022. And the departments wanted to put everyone on notice to say, okay, look, we're getting out these rules again, which we are going to dive into today. But here are some other things that are not in this IFR and things that we are going to try provisions that we are going to try to provide regulations and guidance for uh, later on in 2021 and in 2022. In particular, the and 2022, there are some provisions such as listing the in-network and out-of-network deductibles and out-of-pocket limits on a patient's insurance card and other plan documents. We actually talked about that topic in one of our podcasts, Dennis. The department said that they're not going to issue guidance on that until sometime after January 1, 2022. So don't be looking out for it before then. After. In addition, other provisions, providing updated provider network directories to participants. Another issue that we know that our members have asked us questions about. We're not going to get guidance on that until after January 1, 2022. And another aspect of No Surprises Act that we detailed in our brief and we briefly talked about in one of our podcasts, the prohibition on contractual gag clauses, which involves data sharing between an insurance carrier and a medical provider. We're not going to see guidance on that until after January 1, 2022. Now, what might we see later on in 2021, though? The departments did signal to us that you will be seeing or that we will be seeing guidance detailing how the federally developed arbitration independent dispute resolution process will work. We're expecting those to come out in September or October. We'll also likely see guidance on the price comparison tool, which is also something that our members care about and payers in the industry care about because the price transparency comparison tool is similar to the cost-sharing liability tool that was in the health plan regulations issued last year. And the effective date for the cost-sharing liability tool is not effective until January 1, 2023 and 2024. So we have this disparate effective date for this particular uh, provision that was in the No Surprises Act. We will see some guidance on this price comparison tool by the end of this year. And we are hoping that there will be some coordination between this rules relating to the price comparison tool and the provision that was just enacted at the end of last year in the No Surprises Act and how that's going to interact with, as stated, the health plan transparency rules and this cost-sharing liability tool. So that's at least, again, Dennis, what's not in the reg and at least what we can expect throughout the remainder of 2021 and what we can expect in 2022. Thanks, Chris. That's a great place for us to start by taking a look at what is not in the regulations so far. But one thorny area that you didn't mention is the advanced explanation of benefits. And I know that caught our members' attention early on. So what about that space, the advanced explanation of benefits? Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because I specifically left that out of my earlier comments to emphasize it here. So the advanced explanation of benefits or the AEOB requirement is a big deal. And a lot of our members um, you know, have really been wrestling with how to comply with this particular provision. 
And we have no guidance on it. All we have is the statute. And interestingly, though, the statute's pretty clear. The statute tells us what information the plan needs to provide to the participants. And it, to me, it's and to many of us, it's pretty straightforward. The rub is much of the information that needs to be communicated by the plan to the participant is information that they receive from the medical provider. And there is concern that the plan is not going to receive information from the medical provider on a timely basis to comply with this AEOB requirement. Now, unfortunately, this July 1st IFR says nothing about the AEOB requirement. So that's why we wanted to emphasize it here. Nothing in this IFR speaks to the AEOB requirement. So we're still kind of flailing in trying to figure out what's going to happen and how plans are going to get timely and correct information from the medical providers. And it just remains to be seen whether and when we're going to get some guidance from the federal departments. But right now, it's an open question, Dennis. Well, Chris, as you can imagine, then that is a pretty big black box with a lot of complicating factors. So we'll keep in touch with you. And I know you'll keep us updated as things develop in that space. So I'm sure we'll circle back around to this topic in the future. One more question I had for you, Chris, before we dive into the details. On a call a few days ago with a number of Health Plan Alliance members, someone said something like, you know, aren't Medicare Advantage plans excluded from the No Surprises Act? So my question to you, what health plans are included subject to the act and which ones are excluded? Yeah, and it's a great question, and we want to tick off all of these things of what's not in the reg <laughs> before we dive in to the details, because what's not in the reg in this IFR is arguably just as important as what's in it. And so to your question, Dennis, the surprise medical billing requirements and the requirements articulated in the July 1st IFR, which we'll go through, only apply to group health plans both fully insured and self-insured group health plans, meaning those uh, health plans sponsored by an employer or an employee organization like a labor union or a municipality or uh, some sort of governmental type plan, uh, those are subject to the surprise billing requirements. In addition, individual market plans sold by commercial insurance carriers licensed to operate in the individual market in the state that sell both on and off exchange plans. They are subject to these surprise medical billing requirements and the IFR. What is not subject to the surprise billing requirements and the IFR are plans like Medicare Advantage. They're not subject to the surprise billing requirement, nor are Medicare supplemental plans. Also Medicare, Medicaid managed care plans, not subject to the surprise billing requirements. Others, products, you know, like HRAs, accepted benefits, short-term health plans, which are oftentimes excluded when um, Congress enacts provisions applicable to commercial insurance or a group health plan, they too are not subject to the surprise billing requirements. So I hope that clarifies a question that's been out there. 
Thanks, Chris. That does help clarify that question about who's included and which plans are excluded. So I think that covers everything that's not in the IFR. So are you ready to dive into what is in the IFR? What do our members need to know about it? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Dennis. And just to take a step back, I mean, we purposefully went through what's not in the IFR to now touch on what what is. And in all honesty, the IFR that just came out July 1st is primarily focusing on what I call the surprise billing payment process. Because as many may know, and, and we've covered this on prior podcasts, there is steps in this payment process where the patient pays a certain amount. And in this case, it's generally the in-network negotiated rate. Then the plan pays an initial amount to the provider. And then any excess over what the patient paid and what the plan initially paid is where the difference or where the dispute lies between the provider and the plan. And in order to determine what is that excess amount, what is that amount that is, to, for all intents and purposes, under dispute between the plan and the provider, how do you determine what that payment amount is supposed to be? And the statute, the No Surprises Act, created a uh, benchmark to determine what that excess amount that's payable by the plan to the provider actually is. And you've heard me talk about it, you've heard Dennis talk about it, you've heard others talk about it. And this benchmark is the in-network median rate in a particular geographic area. So then the question comes, well, how do you determine the in-network rate in a geographic area? And how do you identify the median of said in-network rate? Well, the IFR goes into detail on how to determine the in-network rate as well as the median. And the IFR does define the geographic areas. And those are the three areas, Dennis, that I want to dig in and have our members understand. First, when it comes to determining this in-network rate, the IFR simply says, hey, if you're a commercial insurance carrier out there selling fully insured plans, you look to your plan design within your various lines of insurance business. So if you have a line of individual market plans, you look to all of your plan designs and the rates that you charge for a particular medical item service covered by all those plan designs, and you stack them up in order from least amount to greatest amount. Same thing if you're in the small group market. Same thing if you're in the large group market. So again, you're defining or you're identifying the in-network rates by your insurance line of business. Now, another thing that we talked about in the podcast previously was whether you define or you find the in-network rate within an insurance carrier or across various insurance companies operating in a particular area or a state. Well, the IFR clarifies that it's within that particular insurance carrier. So applying these different lines of business, 
to now this new fact that I just provided you, which is you look within the particular insurance carrier. If I have insurance carrier A, I look at all of the rates charged by insurance carrier A. Now, if I have insurance carrier B, C, and D out there, they might have different rates and they're gonna have different in-network rates than insurance carrier A. So you're going to have different in-network rates out there among each of the carriers, each of the payers out there. And that's another important clarification for folks to understand. Now, how do you identify the median of these in-network rates? I guess it sounds simple when you hear me say it, but as I stated, you stack up all these rates from least to greatest, and you simply identify the middle rate. That is your median in-network rate. Now, what's the geographic area that uh, is utilized to determine you know, the stacking of those in-network rates from least to greatest within your respective insurance lines of business? Well, the geographic area is the metropolitan statistical area as defined by the U.S. Census Bureau. Kind of gobbledygook and kind of technical stuff that not even me, the pointy-headed lawyer, usually deals with, but nonetheless, it is a regional definition that is used in the insurance industry, that it's used in other areas to use as a statistical sample to aggregate data. And it's this metropolitan statistical area defined by the Census Bureau that you utilize to determine the geographic rate then again, you grab your in-network rates that are charged by all the plan designs within your lines of business, you stack them up from least to greatest, bam, you find the middle, bam, you got the median rate. So while that sounds simple, that was not simple as we all read the statute and we all were trying to figure out what this magical in-network median rate is in a geographic area. <laughs> Oh, all right, Chris. I have to chuckle uh, a little bit when you said this qualifying payment amount and the rules behind it are simple, uh, because I'm going to need a couple of more iterations of it. So I know it'll probably be a topic that will come up uh, on one of our, our future podcasts. I do have one other uh, final question to uh, to throw at you. Chris, and it's come up among our members a number of times, and that is state laws versus federal law. Who and where are the guiding regulations coming from when uh, our health plans are taking a look at their state regulations versus the federal regulations? This is a preemption question where you have state law versus federal law. And the question is, is where does state law preempt federal law? Where does federal law preempt state law. Now, as we all know, there are a number of states that have surprise billing laws on the books. And when Congress was drafting the No Surprises Act, they didn't want to mess with those state laws. So Congress said, hey, in states where there is a state surprise medical billing law on the books, that state law is going to preempt federal law. So you don't have to worry about what I just told you about with regard to determining the in-network median rate, because that deals with the federal law requirements under the No Surprises Act. Instead, 
you're going to deal with whatever your state law says. Now, what happens in cases where a state law only applies to HMOs and doesn't apply to commercial carriers? Someone might say, well, you got a state surprise billing law on the books. Does that matter here? Well, it does for HMOs, but it won't matter for the commercial carriers that are not subject to the state law. In other words, state law does not preempt federal law in this case because state law doesn't apply to other plans other than HMOs. In that case, the federal law requirements will apply. So almost think of it as if there are gaps in the state law, that's when the Federal No Surprises Act comes in. I just gave you the example of the HMO. Another example that the IFR gives is uh, the state surprise billing law focuses on emergency services, but it doesn't cover post-stabilization services. So back to your favorite term earlier, Dennis, it doesn't cover post-stabilization in terms of state law. Well, the federal surprise billing requirements do cover post-stabilization services. So in that case, the state law would apply to the emergency services and the federal law would apply to the post-stabilization services. And lastly, if you have, let's say, providers out there, specialty providers, the IFR even gives an example of a neonatal doctor. The services that they provide might be out of network. And let's say the state surprise billing law does not extend to neonatal doctors. Well, the surprise medical billing requirements on the federal level do. And in that case, federal law will apply where state law won't. So there's this conflict of law issue that actually the departments have also requested comments to try to iron out. But I hope my explanation inartfully described at least to the extent I can describe it of where state law is going to apply and where federal law is going to apply. And one last point, Dennis, to give uh, another context here. If I'm in state A, or if I'm an insurance carrier in state A, and there's a surprise billing law on the books in state A, and I'm covering someone who lives in state A, but yet they were out of state when they had an emergency situation and they got emergency care from a provider in state B. Well, the state law in state A can't extend to other states. So in that case, actually federal law and the Federal No Surprises Act, the surprise billing requirements will apply where state law will not. So that's another important aspect that I think our plans need to pay attention to is where is the patient getting the services? Is it within a state that has a state surprise billing law or is it a state that does not? That's really helpful, Chris. Thanks. Um, we've covered a lot today. I have a feeling we've only scratched the surface and I know you'll continue to do research into the uh, IFR and uh, you've got your biweekly uh, briefs that come out and uh, continue uh, our 
future podcasts, and the Alliance is planning several webinars on the No Surprises Act coming up as well. So we've got a lot more to learn about it over the next few months. So thanks for guiding us through this. And uh, until next month, Chris, take care of yourself. Thanks, everybody. Stay cool out there. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our Policy Brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming policy forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.